thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's edition of God, Law, and Liberty. And today, I'm delighted to have you with me as we continue to look at the conception of law that dominates even within the Christian community compared to what is a biblical conception of law. And again, as I said last week, my purpose is not to be critical of those who labor in the field of law and public policy, trying to support Christian values, but to help us understand how far we have departed from the biblical conception of law and how awash we are in really a humanistic, godless conception of law. And again, as I've said, and will continue to repeat, it's the same conception of law and public policy that I embraced, that I operated under most of my time in the legislature and since then. And by the grace of God, I've been rescued from it. And my intent is to help you understand fundamentally what's gone on, the fundamental shift that's taken place in our society and what needs to be done if we're going to restore a right understanding of law in order that we might glorify and honor God in the way we pursue public policy. That's the goal. How do we honor and glorify God by our conception of law and its application to the issues of our day? And applying a godless, humanistic, positivistic view of law is not glorifying and honoring to God. Now, last week, for those of you who may not have listened or need a little bit of refresher, we said you got to begin understanding the situation in which we find ourselves today with some understanding of what the common law is. And I promised that this week we would look at the wrong understanding of common law that is now taught to lawyers and has been taught to lawyers over the last hundred years in America's law schools. So that's what we want to do today. Now, last week, with respect to the common law, I gave you a few statements from Adam McLeod, remarks that he made on the common law to a group of lawyers in Washington, D.C. last spring. And just for a brief refresher, before I get to what we're going to cover today, he said then that common law is not judge-made law. That's a distortion of the common law. He called it a defamation of the common law, invented by Oliver Wendell Holmes and taught by elite law schools over the last hundred years. And he said that the concept of law now is simply predicting how judges will rule or what the legislature might do, let's say, not that there is any law to be argued because the law is now coming from the judge. There's no law outside of the judge that guides, directs the judge's conclusions, no realities that the 
judge confronts other than particular facts that are now, since the Enlightenment, meaningless facts, facts that we have to give meaning to, because there's no God to give those facts meaning. Now, what I'm going to play today is the argument made by a Republican member of the Tennessee House of Representatives against an amendment, actually to table an amendment, that would have injected the common law conception of the person into the legislation that was enacted to try to restrain transgender procedures being administered to minors. So that you can understand what the representative is saying, let me just tell you what the amendment said that caused him such heartburn. This, this is the language of it, and, and he thought this was so bad it needed to be tabled, and it was tabled by a vote of 51 to 41. This state has a legitimate, substantial, and compelling interest in securing a minor's fundamental right at common law to be protected from physical harms to their body, including but not limited to, interference with or disruption of the proper functioning of their healthy organs according to their biologic purpose. And again, the key language here is securing a fundamental right at common law not to have people mess up your healthy, properly functioning Organs and limbs. Okay? So with that, let me play for you what this lawyer said, and I'm going to break this up into little parts so that I can comment on it to help you better understand just how twisted and wrong this lawyer's understanding of law and common law is. Mr. Speaker, thank you very much, and I want to rise today, let the members know, let all Tennesseans know that are listening to my voice that I support this legislation wholeheartedly. I also support and admire my colleague, the chairman, who asked for this amendment to be added to the bill. I must, though, ask to move that this amendment be laid on the table for two reasons. The first is while it does change a couple of words in this legislation, those words are profound. So I believe in our committee system. I do believe that this should have started in the committee system to debate why those words have such profound distinctions in how it changes this legislation to potentially make it suspect for constitutional challenge, and here's why. He said there, there are two reasons. He said that while this only changes a couple of words, he's going to point them out in the next little bit I'll play. He said this, this should have gone through the committee. The Judiciary Committee, because the little change of words, I'll give you the hint, the use of the word common law, is so profound, he says. 
Now, let me just kind of say here, when you're not a member of a particular committee, in this case the Judiciary Committee, you don't have an opportunity to go in and present am amendments to a bill that's not yours. This bill this was not the chairman of the committee that filed the amendment. So, in other words, Representative Halsey's first time to get to see the bill, to know if he wanted to amend it, was on the floor. So that's a subterfuge, and most people realized it. The, the rules for, allow for you to file amendments on the floor, and particularly if they're amendments that haven't been considered in the committee because you weren't even on the committee, and it wasn't your bill to file amendments to. So that's just a joke. But he does say that it would potentially make it unconstitutional. Now, that's an ominous word when you're a legislator, right? But now, think about this, ladies and gentlemen. Roe versus Wade was reversed last June by the court tracing the history of abortion and its criminality for over a 700-year period under the common law. And somehow, now talking about the common law is going to make this law unconstitutional? That's just unfathomable to me. The day before the Dobbs decision came out, the reversed Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court interpreted the Second Amendment and its application to a New York gun law by again tracing several hundred years of the common law. So when this lawyer tells the body that using or referencing common law could make the bill unconstitutional, he is demonstrating his utter incompetence and failure to grasp the most recent and prominent Supreme Court rulings interpreting the Constitution. Now, I could stop right there. It makes me want to spit nails just to hear that. But it gets worse, and you need to hear the rest. So with that, let's pick up where he left off. So my second reason is this. The sentence, and I'm going to read it, the state has a legitimate, substantial, compelling interest in securing a minor's fundamental right, and I want you to listen to this, at common law to be protected from physical harms to their body, including with non-institute interference or with disruption of the proper functioning of their healthy organs according to their biological purpose. But for those two words, common law, I would have absolutely no problem with this amendment, and here's why. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no common law, right? Common law, as our chairman said, is when we pass legislation here, that particular statute is interpreted by our judges at the trial level. If the litigants at that particular time wish to appeal because they disagree with that interpretation from the judge, they can appeal to our Court of Appeals. Our Court of Appeals can then surmise on that particular statute, and that's how judges, called case law, creates what's our common law. Okay. Let me interpret that for you. He just said that's how judges create our common law. Now, what's interesting is it is true that under the common law, when judges issued a decision, they were saying, here's what we believe the law to be, 
I gave the example last week. You went in, ordered a lobster dinner, and then, you know, rushed out and didn't pay for it. So the common law would say that's stealing and you have to pay. The judge's judgment would be in, in favor of the restaurant owner. But, but he's saying, no, the, the court creates the common law by interpreting statutory law, which would seem to say that there can't be any common law until we have a statute that a court then interprets. Do you see how that is so fundamentally different from what Adam McLeod, who teaches common law, I mean, it's interesting that he teaches a course in something that this lawyer in the House of Representatives says doesn't exist. Common law doesn't exist. There's no such thing as common law. It's created by judges when they review our statutes. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and play some more here. Hold on. What we do with that, when we have a problem, we have an issue that our judges say is common law, we're down here, we're supposed to create that common law, which then becomes statutory law, which then becomes more powerful. It is what we do. Every time we run into something that is suggested to be the common law, Mr. Speaker, we pass a law to make it statutory, to enhance, to increase, to make these children more safe because we're passing a law that does just that. It's not subject to interpretation from a judge of what the common law means and then trickle down through our court system. And we don't know because often we have to interpret ourselves what our court of appeals and what our Supreme Court justice say for the common law. It's the duty that we have to turn that common law to statutory law or we place it in our Constitution. And now, let me just stop you here. Notice that he said, when we run into something that we think is the common law. Now, he just said there wasn't any such thing as common law, but he says we, we as legislators may run into things that we think are the common law, and it's our duty to codify them, to, to legislate, to put them in statutes so that we make more secure the right that we think it is the common law that doesn't exist. And, and if all that sounds gibberishy a little bit, how can there be a common law and a common law that doesn't exist? Well, it's because this lawyer is so confused. But he's, he's conceding, essentially, that there is some law that's out there, but it doesn't really exist until we put it in a statute. And the reason we put it in a statute is to make it clear exactly what you one can and cannot do. Now, when you read the amendment, Notice what the amendment says that he objects to. The amendment is seeking to secure. The state has an interest in securing a minor's fundamental right at common law to be protected. In other words, the language that he's objecting to in the amendment does exactly what he says the legislature is supposed to do, which is to say, we think that this person has a right to not be harmed in their body, so to make sure, so that a judge doesn't say, no, there's not, and it trickles down to us, we're going to go ahead and put it in a statute to make it more secure. So in essence, the amendment was doing exactly what he wanted it to do by saying, we believe this right exists, and now we're going to put it in the statute, or he said you could put it in the Constitution, so that nobody's mistaken about it.
Now, what he's complaining about is that sometimes judges do stupid things. They might hold that, well, no, uh, this is a, a right of a parent to make a health care decision for their minor child, and if the parent wants to you know, disfigure their child, well, that's a health care decision, and they can do it. And, and we would say, no, you can't do that because the common law actually protects everybody's body and the parent's first duty is to protect their child's body. So a parent can't have a right to maim their child. But if that's what you've said, Judge, in that particular case, we're going to enact a statute now that makes it clear that in the law. So in other words, we were trying to do exactly what this lawyer wants to do but he doesn't understand that's what he wants to do because he doesn't understand the common law. Now, the other thing this lawyer doesn't understand is that when the judge rules in the case of parent A versus the state of Tennessee, and parent A argues that they have the right, constitutional right, to consent to their minor child's gender procedures, well, the judge isn't making law. The judge is trying to discern what the law is. He's improperly discerned it, but he issues a judgment in favor of parent A. But that's not a law. It's a judgment in favor of parent A. It is not law for every parent in the state of Tennessee. It is not law for every doctor or every official in the state of Tennessee because it was a judgment involving just parent A. So this lawyer doesn't even understand that judges don't make law, which was the whole idea behind the common law, is the judges aren't making law, but they're trying to discern what the law already is and then apply it to the situation. Now, let me continue. Why do we do that? Because that's the ultimate protection that we've sworn an oath to do down here as we defend, make better our Tennessee Constitution and the U.S. Constitution. So there's that order. The common law does not exist. So but for those two words, this debate should take place in committee, and that's why I rise today with all due respect to the sponsor of the amendment that this should be laid on the table, Mr. Speaker, and I so move. Okay, you heard a smattering of applause from other people and the members of the General Assembly who don't know what law is, don't have a conception of law, who didn't understand the unintelligibility of his statements, that when we run into things we think there's common law, uh, then we codify them. And then he closes by saying common law doesn't exist. Well, if it doesn't exist, you can't run into things that are common law. Do you see how confused the thinking is today when you abandon a biblical cosmology that says there is a law that pertains to everything because God has created everything and given a law pertaining to its nature and its function and its purpose? I mean, friends, when you've lost a biblical cosmology, which we have, this lawyer has no biblical framework at all.
And when Christians concur in saying common law needs to be thrown in the trash heap of history, we ought not be bringing it out. We, it, it doesn't help us predict how judges are going to rule in the next case. Well, we've abandoned that cosmology too. Now, here's the important thing, my friend, is that a cosmology will produce certain kinds of results and cannot, except by freak accident, we'll say, or by the mercy of God, produce a good result. It is like getting blood from a turnip. You don't get blood from turnips. You get turnip juice from turnips, and you get blood from living beings, but they don't cross over. So until we restore a biblical cosmology and a biblical conception of law, we're just going to keep getting the same problems and larger ones and more of them that we've been getting, and we won't ever pass enough laws saying, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. And in any event, those laws will never create the good that's been lost because we have no conception of the good in a non-biblical cosmology. This is how lost, my friends, we are. So I hope now you can see that this lawyer and Adam McLeod are living in two different universes, two different cosmoses, two different understandings of what common law is. Now, what I'm going to do next week is play for you some remarks about the biblical conception of law given by Dr. Burnside, who holds the chair of biblical law at the University of Bristol in the United Kingdom. And you will see how a right conception of biblical law is consistent with common law. I would say the common law as we had it coming out of the Reformation and into our nation was in essence an application of the biblical conception of law, and we've lost it. And I'll tell you why I think we no longer want it back. And the reason for that is distressing to me. Well, I, I, I don't want to end the program in a way that sounds distressing. And David, I just can't listen next week. This is just getting worse and worse. Because there is hope because God's law endures forever. God's word endures forever. God's word cannot be thwarted. God's creational norms, God's creational laws cannot be forever repudiated by man. He may allow man to run to a certain point before he brings his judgment on them, and most likely he's allowing them to run to such extremes in order to discipline his church and wake them up from the stupor that we've been under and the fact that we're swimming in a polluted conception of law. And it may take the wicked having control of the law to arouse us from our slumber, to remove us from the swamp of humanism in which we've been swimming, that we might begin again to restore a right and biblical conception of law. And so do not 
despair. But learn and join with me in beginning to try to restore a biblical conception of law, pass it on to the next generation that they might pass it on to the next generation. And God will be honored and glorified as he pursues the purposes that he laid out in Genesis 1 and 2. And I hope you'll join me for next week on the next episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.